I'm Marissa. I'm Liza. And this is the Little Sleep Much Reading Podcast. And finally, from so little sleeping and so much reading, his brain dried up and he went completely out of his mind. So this week's episode, do you guys remember what it was when we announced it last week? It's Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. And if you don't remember, both me and Liza are reading the same book. I'm so excited. So the reason that you're listening to this beautiful episode today is that I was in a bookstore in August and I picked up this book. And I texted Marissa right quick, lickety split. And I said, Marissa, I'm at a bookstore and I think I want to read Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. And she said something along the lines of, are you kidding? I'm holding Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury in my hands. And then this episode idea was born. It's true. I was holding it right in my hands. I was indexing a bunch of books that I had just gotten. And I was holding this one right in my hands, typing out the name as Liza texted me and I got full body chills. I was like, this is meant to be. We have twin telepathy. (laughs) So like I said, this book is by Ray Bradbury. And man, did this guy live a life? Yeah. He reminds me of like the grandpa that everyone would want. (laughs) That's so real. I would also say if no one has visited his website yet, go do it because it is probably the best writer's website I've ever been on. Do you ever go to a writer's website and it's so bad? Yes. And you're like, this is not user-friendly. I could learn more from Wikipedia. I don't understand anything that's happening. You must have a bigger budget than this. (laughs) Something Wicked This Way Comes was published in 1962, which what a time. And the boys in this book just run around and do whatever they want. And they sneak out of their houses. And I'm like, it must be nice. Imagine being a boy in the 60s. Hey, nothing was stopping you except maybe the Vietnam War. (laughs) (laughs) And and then you got in a pickle. Uh, Except the Vietnam War and the weird carnival that comes to town. Yes. At the end of October (laughs) when carnivals should not be running. So Mr. Bradbury was born August 22nd, 1920, and he actually just recently died in 2012. I remember that because I was in eighth grade, I think, and we read Fahrenheit 451, and he either died right before or right after we read it. Ooh, that's pretty crazy. Did you like it? I loved it. For a while, that was one of my favorite books ever, and I read that book the same year I read The Lottery by Shirley Jackson. And I think I credit that time where, I don't know, I like to think that had I not read The Lottery, I maybe wouldn't have become a writer, even though I didn't start writing until like two years later. And I don't know if I would have become as a prolific teen reader other than like YA, Mm -hmm. um, if it weren't for Fahrenheit 451. You didn't like it right? When you first read it? I did not. I was a good student and I always read everything I had to. I had all my summer reading done early. I was one of those kids. My parents never had to yell at me about it. Mm -hmm. I was just 
on it, but this is the only summer reading book that I specifically remember I did not finish it. I put mm. it down and I was like, I'm not finishing this book. I'm not reading it. <gasps> I don't like it. Oh, no. So Fahrenheit 451 is the only one that I did not finish. And I think I've read it freshman year of high school. So yeah. like going into high school. And actually, when we get into our notes, I will talk a little bit about why I think I have issues with his books. And just so that we know, Fahrenheit 451 came out in 1953, so about nine years before Something Wicked. I have two things to read from his website. The first one, it just says 400 short stories and nearly 50 books, numerous poems, essays, plays, operas, teleplays, and screenplays. So this man has been busy. Prolific. King. 50 books and 400 short stories. Yo, something was in the freaking water back in the day. Because writers from a certain time period were just like, and I'll do it, and I'll do it again, and then I'll do it three more times. <laughs> and people just ate it up. People were like, absolutely. Well, Ray Bradbury to me seems like one of those authors that like there were people who were like, no, well, I will read every single one of his books. And kind of like Stephen King, he was like the first king, almost, almost like a cult classic type of thing. Yeah. I also want to read this other quote, which I find interesting, and I know Liza will, and I'm sure anyone who's read this book specifically will find it interesting. Ray often told the story of an encounter with a carnival magician, Mr. Electrico, who reached out to the 12-year-old Ray Bradbury, touched him, with his energy charge sword and commanded live forever. And Bradbury said, I decided that was the greatest idea I had ever heard. And I started writing every day and never stopped. <gasps> oh my God. I'm obsessed with that because I knew that the lightning rod salesman or magician was real or like, whatever. He had met a guy at a carnival that was like a magician, a fake magician, but like a real magician. But I didn't know that. That's such a good start I, story. I'm obsessed with that. Also, he was right. Ray Bradbury is almost certainly going to live forever. Mm -hmm. That's very cool. I mean, the man is, he's got like space shit named after him. Yeah. And he did live to be like, what, 92 years old? Hex, yeah. He was okay. old. Go off. So the one interesting fact I learned while um, researching this book is that I had not realized that, first things first, it takes place in a fictional town called Greentown, Illinois, which if it sounds familiar, you would be correct um, because Greentown appears in a lot of Ray Bradbury's work. And even though it's a different cast of characters and a different storyline entirely, Something Wicked This Way Comes is seen as a sequel to Dandelion Wine, which I have not read, but I very much want to. And it's been on my shelf for quite some time, and I do need to get to it. Actually, he calls it part of a trilogy. The third book in it is called Farewell Summer. So the thing that I found the most striking about that is that he seems to have a preoccupation with seasons because a huge part of this book is the season. And I feel like I kind of want to get into that a little bit later, but I find it interesting. And I don't know, his idea about summer people and autumn people, I think is really cool. But yeah, that's a bit of background on the setting of Something Wicked This Way Comes. I don't know if it was just me, but 
while reading this, there were so many other works that were coming to mind. Mm -hmm. And you just mentioned the autumn people and the summer people. And I thought of uh, Kelly Link's story, the summer people. Summer people, yeah. And um, I mean, it didn't seem like they connect at all no but but still it's just weird yeah the the little things that you think of when you have read so much totally and also just for the record mr ray bradbury says pop and not soda because he uses pop in in this book do you say pop i do say pop that's like a midwestern thing most of new york i believe says soda yeah. But for some reason, Western New York says pop. Did you know that some people call every single soda Coke? Annie. Little Miss Indiana. She'd be like, can I get a Coke? And then pours out a freaking Sprite. Or is it just all, all brown sodas are Coke? Or is it all soda is Coke? I'm not sure. I can handle pop, but I cannot handle calling all oh. sodas. Because a cola is a type of soda. <laughs> yeah. I can't deal with Annie. <laughs> I just want everyone to know Ray Bradbury, who has geographical features on Mars named after him, says Pop. She is to that. Very important information. (laughs) But yeah, I mean, I think the only other thing we could say about the book that doesn't have to do with a summary or anything yet is just the weird connection that it has to Gene Kelly. Yeah. This book is dedicated to him, (laughs) to, to Gene Kelly. And the author's note in the back, which actually I don't think is called, yeah, it's not called an, an author's note. It's called a brief afterward. It's just um, Mr. Ray talking about why this book is dedicated to Gene Kelly and how he wanted to make something inspired by Gene Kelly and that would have Gene Kelly in it. And then he wrote like an 80 page outline treatment script and gave it to Gene Kelly, who took it around to Paris and London and all these places and no one wanted to finance it. So then Gene Kelly was like, whoops, sorry. And then Ray Bradbury spent the next five years turning it into the novel that we know today, which is just insane. So it was supposed to be something you can sing and dance in, I'm guessing. That's just bizarre. I guess I can kind of see it being like, I don't know. It's weird. Here we go. It's obviously based on Macbeth, the title, by the pricking of my thumb, something wicked this way comes. And I think they say that in the story. So like you can kind of see why he was like, well, put it on the stage. But otherwise, I do not even think this would translate well to film. Like, I is there a movie of it? There is, but it's from like 1980 and it hasn't been redone yet. I'm sure it's bad. When you were talking about like how he like wanted it to be for Gene Kelly, I was like, this is definitely fruity. Like, why did that seem a little bit? (laughs) I was like, not a Gene Kelly, Ray Bradbury love affair. I mean. It wouldn't be the first time something like that happened. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> I wonder, how old was Gene Kelly in 1960-ish? Well, he was born in 1912. Okay, so then that makes me think, what character was he supposed to be? The dad? Probably the dad, which is think... weird, unless he was supposed to be the um Mr. Dark. Not Gene Kelly the villain. I can't see Gene Kelly as a villain or as a dad. No. Also, I just looked up this movie. Ray Bradbury wrote the screenplay, so I'm sure it's not that bad, but also it looks bad. 
I'm not surprised. So Something Wicked This Way comes, starts in the end of October when a carnival comes to town, um, which I guess if you don't know, late October is far too late for the carnival to come to town. The stars are Will Halloway and Jim Nightshade, who are two BFFs, uh, one of which was born one minute before midnight on October 30th, and the other who was born one minute after midnight on October 31st. So very iconic. And without giving too much away, a lightning rod salesman shows up and warns the boys that danger is afoot. The carnival arrives and it's super weird and it kind of puts a little bit of, what do you call it, like a hypnotic spell on the people of Greentown? Yes. And everybody just has a bad feeling about it, including Charles Halloway, which is Will's dad, who works at the library. Basically, it just follows the boys' adventures with the different people they meet at the carnival and the impact the carnival and the carnival rides on the midway have on the people of the town and the freaks that come with the freak show um, and a whole big cast of of. I want to say they're kind of monsters, including the main antagonist, Mr. Dark, and the boys and Charles, the dad, have to figure out how to get themselves out of this hold that the carnival has on Greentown. That was beautiful. Thank you. Wonderful. Yeah, so it's it's really strange. We have a very fun cast of characters to kind of play with here. And without further ado, let's just get into the scale. Woo! Um, so for readability, I said five to six. I wasn't really into this book. There was nothing super interesting or compelling about it to me. It just wasn't my kind of book. So I, I gave it a five or six because the chapters are short, but I was powering through it because I was just eh, to me. We're off to an interesting start, ladies and gentlemen, Um, because I gave this book an eight for readability, so quite higher than um, Marissa, and I think that came from a similar place as you, this idea that, like, I kind of powered through it, um, and the chapters are very short, and I really like that, but I think what happened to me was the timing of this book was everything, because around the fall equinox, I get into a very silly, goofy mood (laughs) where I'm ready for anything spooky. And I think this is the perfect book, in my opinion, to read around the beginning of October. And of course, you could read at the end of October when it actually takes place. I think that's why I ranked the readability so high. I was like, this is perfect for the time period that we're in right now. And I also, even though it was quite scary, My note on readability was that it was a cozy read, even though it's freaky, it just elicited a kind of comforting feeling. And I don't know if Marissa feels the same way, but where I grew up had a whole lot of county fairs um, in September and early October. And so it was just very, like, very, very familiar. And I think that made me connect to the plot and the setting, even though obviously nothing that crazy ever happened to me at the carnival. But I think that helped me in terms of the readability. Like I was in it to win it. I I like that. I like (laughs) that. Definitely an interesting start. There we Um, go. For form and stylization, I gave this a six to a seven. So I kind of struggled with this category. This is a little bit of a tangent. 
But I'm wondering if we should split it into two separate ones and let form be a kind of bonus because all writers should have their own style, but not all writers do something experimental with form. Mm-hmm. And we can't judge a book negatively for that, right? Because there's nothing wrong with not doing anything experimental. Right. So I'm thinking maybe we split those two up, but just for this episode, we'll keep it how it is. Besides that, on the back of my book, there is a quote that says, Bradbury has a style all his own, much imitated, but never matched. Mm -hmm. Um, And I read that before I read any of the book. And so I was thinking a lot about his style. Mm -hmm. And although I can see things that he does, I can't quite piece it all together. I think it would take more readings of his other books to fully understand his style. But I think I noticed particularly why his writing turns me off a little bit. Something about it is hard for me to actually picture and Mm. like understand. There were so many parts of this book where I was confused. Yeah. Which doesn't happen to me often while I'm reading. And I would also say this book and Fahrenheit 451 is like borderline preachy to me, Mm. which turns me off. That's why I gave it a six to a seven. The things that I can see him doing, I really did like. Mm -hmm. And I do think that we have to give him some credit for being Ray Bradbury and the way he pieces his sentences together. You can tell that there's style in that. So that's why I read it six to seven. I, okay. (laughs) Um, I think you're right. Because here's what happened. He's not doing really anything interesting with the form in this book. I mean, there's a few times that he did something kind of cool with the chapter setup. Kind of like you said with the quick chapters. And then sometimes there there was one chapter where there was only one sentence on the page. And like that thing was kind of cool. But like I caught a similar thing because I was like, in terms of form, nothing really interesting happening. However, I said, I wrote down out of all six books I personally have talked about so far for this podcast, this by far, in my opinion, has the best language. And so I gave this, this is, I think this is the highest I've ever given somebody in this category. Maybe I put After Dark in a similar area, but I gave it a 9.5, but it's because I abandoned the concept of form and I just went with style. And so I definitely think, yeah, maybe we should have like two categories, one that's like language and one that's form. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know what, he's got some kind of hold on me, but The language and the descriptions I thought were simply stunning. Um, And there were some lines in here that were honestly some of the best that I have ever read. I kind of see what you're saying too, because like sometimes it's like a little bit too much and you almost can't quite see what he's, what he's, you can't picture it sometimes, but then there's other points too, where like, I'm like, oh my God, I get exactly what, what you were trying to say there there's one in particular that I was like oh that's weird this is just an example of like one of those like what a weird weird way to say that but I understand exactly what you're saying this is uh, the first page of chapter 41 which in my book is 191 a shadow moved among shadows Charles Halloway felt his soul submerge the shadow seemed deliberate in its slowness so as to shingle his flesh and cheese grate his steadily willed calm 
And I was like, whoa, that is so weird. You know, we have these ideas as writers, like there's words that you just, why would you use that? It's not like a nice word. It's not a pretty word. Cheese grate. I was like, that is so weird. But at the same time, I totally understood what he was trying to say, like cheese grate someone's calmness. I don't know. So it was things like that, that I was really struck by. And I truly remember that. I remember that about Ray Bradbury, even though I haven't read him in a long time. And I kind of remembered that about when I read Fahrenheit 451 as well. But something I do want to say on the end of form that when you were saying like, I don't know if I can pick out the style quite particularly. And I was like, yeah, that's true. Like I, 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 it's just Ray Bradbury. Like there's no other like real way to describe it. But the one thing I did notice is that Ray Bradbury loves a killer first line. So the thing that I feel like a lot of people who have read Ray Bradbury, this sticks with them. Fahrenheit 451 starts just simply with it was a pleasure to burn, which is so weird. And I think that the first line of this book stuck out to me, too. And it's the seller of lightning rods arrived just after the storm. That just really hooks you in. And he manages to do that with almost every chapter, which is totally unnecessary. Um, But it's something that he definitely tries to do. And so there was another point that I thought was just absolutely crazy. Chapter 12, page 48. Sometimes you see a kite so high, so wise, it almost knows the wind. It travels, then chooses to land in one spot and no other. And no matter how you yank, run this way or that, it will simply break its cord, seeking its resting place and bring you blood-mouthed running. Which again, like, I don't quite know what that means, bring you blood-mouthed running. But that's an example. Almost all of my annotations in this book were actually just the first, you know, there were some other really stunning lines that stuck out to me, but so many were just the first lines of different chapters. He's very particular about how he, I think, begins and ends things. And the other thing I'll just say real quick, too, is I see what you kind of meant about Preachy, um, because I thought the ending of this book was stunning, but rather weird. I was like, what a strange way to end this horror story. What a strange passage to pick. And it had that a little bit like a, almost like an epitaph on a grave. And he has some other lines like that in his books. And I remember Fahrenheit 451 kind of ending as if it were an epitaph on a gravestone too. Um, so that's kind of, I don't know, that's that's another interesting stylistic choice that he obviously maybe does a lot. Um, but yeah. One thing I really actually liked that he does is he repeats a lot. Yeah. Like he he'll never just say, the boys looked. He'll say, Jim looked well looked yeah i don't know why i think it has to do something about how how tiny they the the sentences are and how almost cinematic yes the boys looked there's something not real about that but if you have jim looked and then will looked it's like you can almost see it happening yeah which i thought that that was um really amazing and I, i have to agree with you a lot of his language is stunning his one chapter starts like the sun rose yellow as a lemon or something like mm. that. Mm-hmm. And I was just like, oh, I love that. But I did find that there were parts that I 
wanted that stunning kind of imagery from and I wasn't totally getting it. Mm -hmm. His dialogue is really weird but kind of cool and there's one part in particular where it reminds me of what you were saying and it was like and the freaks did this and the freaks blank and it was like really short dialogue and like really short descriptions and it was so weird and the thought I had was that it weird in a good way that it reminded me of the way Lexi Anderson does dialogue and chef's kiss kiss. and I know for a fact that Lexi Anderson's favorite book is dandelion wine and it's kind of like when you were like Stephen Chbosky this is one of my favorite books and I was like that's so funny because you write like that and I was like, that's so funny because Lexi like, writes like that. And it's not even that like, it's like, oh, Lexi read Dandelion Wine and then decided to do dialogue like that. I think it's that Lexi Anderson does dialogue like that. Right. Ray Bradbury does dialogue like that. And it just how happens to be that they're connected. But no, his dialogue is rather strange. Yeah. I did not find this book particularly scary. I think the scariest thing about this book was the fact that they were children, so nobody mm-hmm. really would believe them. Yeah. But his short sentences, I did find pretty creepy at times. They just really hit the spot at mm-hmm. points. Um, do you think this was shelf-worthy, and would you read it again? I gave it a four. Again, I wasn't really a fan. I don't think it was my kind of book. I think it could easily be borrowed. Maybe support your local library because those are also really important um, if you don't want to buy it. And one thing that kept me reading was that it is a Ray Bradbury book and it is a classic, but it simply wasn't my style of book. I gave this book an 8.5 for shelfworthiness. <laughs> and I did that because, okay, hear me out. Marissa. Are there any books you read every single year? Because I think that's a little weird when people do that, but I know that people do it. Um, no, not every year. No. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Okay, so I said the closest book I have to a book I read every single year, it would be The Christmas Carol. But I've only read that book like three times. In a, like, I, like there's been like, well, I've read it more than that. But like as an adult, I feel like even, or as like a teen, I feel like I've reread it like, around Christmas three times. I love that story, by the way. I think it's one of the best stories ever for some reason. And I really like Charles Dickens. Um, But I don't think I would read this every single year, but I can see why you would. And it all ties back, I think, to the setting and the timing. I don't know. There's so little books connected to seasons, I think. Or there's so few books where the season is the most important thing. So in my head, I was like, I can see why you would read Something Wicked This Way Comes Every Fall. And although I haven't read it, I can see why you would read Dandelion Wine every um, summer. They feel like they like elicit that sort of vibe. I don't know. So that's what, that was my reason behind that. And I also thought that the horror in this book, which we might, you talked on a little bit, and I think we might get into it more with plot, was so weird that I kind of thought if you're like a horror person, this might be something you want on your shelf to kind of remind you that not all horror is the way we think. And there's some weird shit that you can do in your writing that's still somehow unnerving and qualifies as horror, even if it's like doesn't register that way. That was my thinking behind the shelf worthiness. Interesting. Interesting. I think that this book could be read more than once to... um 
I think there's a lot to learn from it, mm-hmm. especially just Ray's style. Um, like we kind of talked about, his language is so good. And so there's something to learn from it. That's all I'll say about that. <laughs> so for plot, I gave this a five. As I stated, I was quite confused a few times during this book. There were a few plot things that I thought were weird and I still kind of don't understand, which after Liza talks about her ideas on plot, I'm going to ask her some of these things Mm. and see if we could figure them out or if I just didn't get them or whatnot. Also, this might be a little bit pretentious of me, but I was expecting so much more and I was imagining such creepy things and they just never happened. Mm-hmm. So this book was a lot lighter than I expected. I also wasn't a huge fan of the whole like boyhood and age mm-hmm. theme. Mm-hmm. But in terms of the horror, I just needed it turned up. Not even turned up. I could have used some of Bradbury's weird language to describe a lot of the horror things. And I mm-hmm. do think that there are some really interesting things happening. Like the different names that they have for people like Mr. Dark isn't just Mr. Dark he's also the illustrated man and the thin man wasn't always the thin man he was also the skeleton man Mm -hmm. so there's some really interesting things that are happening so I really liked that and I liked the I liked the idea of it I liked the idea of the book um I like spooky carnival and I like all the weird characters yeah so I thought the concept was crazy I love freak shows and carnivals and I thought this was super weird and I gave it an eight for plot and like you were saying what I mostly want to talk about in terms of plot is the horror but I think I had like a little bit of a different experience with it but kind of to backtrack a little bit I thought the settings and the concept of the story are killer. I think the carnival is so weird. You know me. I love suburban gothic more than anything else in this earth. So I love that it's set in like a little town. Um, But the carousel is super strange. The house of mirrors, the house of wax, even the library. I thought the settings and the concepts in this book were really bizarre and kind of great but yeah it's the horror in this story that I wanted to touch on because it was kind of a beautiful horror but I was deeply deeply unnerved by certain parts and in the same way that that I don't know like I was having kind of visceral reactions to some of the descriptions but I was just like you know I wasn't scared I wasn't horrified, but I was like, oh, like this is super strange. And I think it might be in his somewhat vivid descriptions and bizarre turns of phrase that almost make you do a triple take at the page. And I say somewhat vivid because I think you're right. There's almost like he doesn't give you enough. And yet you're like, oh, that's weird. Like this one part, you, I don't know. It just is strange. It says, They peered in at the merry-go-round, which lay under a dry rattle and roar of wind-tumbled oak trees. Its horses, goats, antelopes, zebras speared through their spines with brass javelins, hung contorted as in a death rictus, asking mercy with their fright-colored eyes, serving revenge with their panic-colored teeth. 
And I thought, oh my God, what am I reading that is freaking me out in like a really good, in a really great way? Basically, I don't want to spoil anything, but the merry-go-round does strange things to people. And the part where you kind of learn that about the merry-go-round, I thought was really strange. And he describes somebody's mouth as a ruined white flower, the petals twisted into a thin wax sheath over the clenched teeth through which faint bubblings sighed. And I find that so weird and gross. And on the same page, there's like another description that is just frightening to me. And like, I think his horror is clever because like I said, it doesn't scare you, but it's really like unnerving. There's something not quite right about it. And when I was thinking about Ray Bradbury and, you know, obviously Fahrenheit 451 is quite unnerving because they're burning books. That's like upsetting. But all of his books, I feel like, I mean, his short stories have this weird similar feeling to me. So for anybody who's read, including Marissa, if you've read All in a Summer's Day, one of his short stories, and There Will Soon Be Soft Rains. These are two of my favorite of his short stories. And they're not scary, scary per se, but they're each almost gut-wrenching in their own right. Um, And just like, you're like, oh, why did I read that? But oh my God, I'm glad I did. At least to me, the horror in this book can be likened to those stories. And it certainly seems that he has the style of, he's not going to jump out and horrify you, but he's going to present you with this language and these concepts that just make you not feel right, but you kind of like that you don't feel right about it, if that makes any sense. It does. Okay. There were a couple things that I didn't understand. Oh, also, I would just like to say another thing he did that bothered me is I felt like he teased us with the carnival in a way. Mm. Like I wanted to see more. I wanted to be like, what did the animals look like? Were they weird or were they just normal animals? Yeah. And we kind of get to see into the wax house or whatever, but not really. The boys never really go into the mirror house, which to me, those were things that could have really been spooky because the teacher, I don't remember her name. Oh yeah, Mrs. Foley? Yes. Yeah. She goes into the, the mirror room and sees herself young, but the dad goes into the mirror room and sees himself old. So then what would the kids see? You know what I mean? Is it that it presents you with what you want to see? I don't think the dad would have wanted to see himself old. Yeah, I don't know. I wanted to know that. I was also, what happened to to Mrs. Foley? You know, that's a loose end that he did not bother to fix. Okay, and then, so we know that the lightning rod man was turned into the dwarf when he went in to see the ice lady. Remember there's that lady in the block of ice and he like went in to go break her out? Yeah. So what the heck happened? Who was the ice lady? That's the lady that's like the most beautiful woman in the world, right? Is in the block of ice. I think so. Okay, T, because there are some things that like, it's almost like he wanted to pack in like a bunch of different stuff. But the point of the book was the carousel. But he was like, mm, no, I gotta like, you know, do this, that and the other. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Okay, another thing, I wanted to know what the deal was with Jim's dad and his siblings, because his mom was like, oh, you're the only one I have left. She made it seem like he had two or three other siblings who had died. That's pretty interesting. Right. 
Because the only parental figure in this whole thing that really stands out is Charles. Yes. It's that same kind of like, you know, you learn this trope um, when you study like children's lit of the parentless children who's not aren't even necessarily parentless, but their parents are just not there. And Charles is kind of like that. He has the character development of stepping on the trope that's in horror specifically I feel like too where are the parents ever like it would like even in like I know what you did last summer or whatever like that kind of thing where are the parents these are teenagers like somebody should be helping them and there's never any parents yeah and so it's like unclear if he was trying to do that you know we always learn too that's like if you're not going to bring it back up don't mention it right and he just was like no like I'll do it. And also, how did his siblings die? Right. Like, what the heck happened? Like, no, okay. His dad's not in the picture. I'm like, whatever. Some people just don't have dads. And that's the way that it is. But for him to have siblings that have just poofed away, I'm like, that is something to to know. <laughs> that right. is something that I want to know about. Yeah. It never got brought up. He doesn't seem to have any trauma with it. I was like, okay, interesting. But those are the things that confused me off the top of my head. I very much overthought this book. Yeah. There were a lot of things that I was like, hmm, I don't get that much to think about. Much to think about. Did you have a favorite chapter or part or passage or anything? I really like the scene the first time we see the carousel work because it freaked me out the most. It does freak me out that it's like the backwards funeral march or something. Yeah. I'm like, ugh, I don't Ooh. like that. No, it's freaky deaky. Um, I would say one part that did kind of freak me out quite a bit. It wasn't just like one passage. Um, it was something that was repeated quite a few times is when Mr. Cougar is the nephew or whatever, his eyes are described as old, even mm-hmm. though his body is young. Mm. And I found that really creepy. And I really liked that. Characterization? Yeah. I gave this a five. I was genuinely, the whole story, genuinely waiting for their moms to come in. And it just never happened. Like, were they not worried about their kids at all? I did really, really like the dynamic of the boys relationship I loved Mm -hmm. how that whole thing was crafted their characters were crafted really well and I like how one was dark and like the other was light Mm -hmm. it's like so corny but I eat that stuff up Mm -hmm. um I wasn't a huge fan of the dad I thought he was a poor example of the like heroic dad trope that we often see Mm -hmm. and also he's just a crybaby yeah like always said he's like oh i'm old bruh aren't you like 50 that's not old yeah what old is right just because your son can run okay go run with your son right he was just weird and he was a crybaby and also he just i don't know i kind of felt bad for his wife i feel like she genuinely loves him and it felt to me like part of him like resents her Mm. like he's Mm. like oh you trapped me here when I could be hopping around in libraries and now I have a son and I'm old. Right. That's what I thought about that. Yeah, I gave characterization a seven. I felt similarly, like I liked the boys' relationship. I thought the cast of antagonists, uh, the freaks, if you will, were very iconic. 
Um, I thought they were all very like vibrant, even if we didn't get to spend time with, uh, we got to spend time with a decent amount of them, you know, the skeleton man and the dwarf and the dust witch and obviously Mr. Dark slash the illustrated man. But yeah, I thought they were weird and cool. Um, and I can't even say I liked Charles Halloway, but he had the most characterization like um the most character development so i i think sometimes we don't always see character development in characters almost especially with parents in horror or fantasy or stuff you know you, they never really give parents a, a chance to um correct themselves i think and so i think i did appreciate that yeah, I mean, I think overall, Bradbury gave you pretty dynamic characters that you were rooting for. Um, and so, yeah, I gave it like a seven. Who do you think is the main character in this story? I have two answers to that. I don't think it's the boys, although we're with them and the story is kind of about them. I think the main character is probably Charles or a hot take. I kind of think Mr. Dark is the main character. And I'm interested to see what's tea because I don't know if you knew this, but I didn't know this until I was messing around after the fact that Ray Bradbury has a book called The Illustrated Man. Do we get The Illustrated Man again and his nefarious activities? So those are my two ideas. What do you think? For the first half of the book, I thought it was Will. Definitely not Jim. I definitely thought it was Will. And then when we got to around the halfway point, I was like, oh, maybe it's Charles. And I found it strange to have a switch like that, but also really interesting. And I love the take that it's Mr. Dark. Do we have a word for this? Uh, an assumed side character who is actually a main character? There should be like... There should be. A word for this. Yeah. Invent it. Um, So we're going to take a brief intermission, enjoy Sweet Lexi's music, and then we have some extra things to discuss. Hey, welcome back. Wow. That was a long time. That took forever. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) So what themes did you see coming through in this book? Mm -hmm. I mean, there's the obvious one of age and aging versus youth and specifically boyhood. Mm -hmm. But did you see any other interesting ones? Yeah, I mean, that's the main one, right? And then the only other thing that really comes to mind, too, is BFF relationships and father-son relationships, which I think we aren't necessarily going to relate to either because this is a general assumption that does not apply to all people. Girl besties are a little different than boy besties, are a little different than girl-boy besties. And I think father-son relationships are probably wildly different. I mean, this is all working in the binary. So like, you know, everything is different. But father-son relationships are very different to daughter-father relationships. And also we have to remember they're from the 1960s too. Right. Um, 
I don't know. I went on that tangent because I was like, I don't know if I fully related to the friendship or the father relationship in this story, even though I recognized it. I feel like I didn't even really relate to the youthfulness, Mm -hmm. despite only being 22. Yeah. Simply because, I mean, like this book really isn't aimed for girls. I felt like the book always mentions boys and how boys have to run. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, when they race each other, there was a lot of specifically boy themes. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, like a 1960s take, but... It was strange, in my opinion, and Mm -hmm. it's also very boy in the sense that there really are no female characters, um, except the mothers who aren't really mentioned, um, Mrs. Foley, who who knows what happened to her, and um, the Dust Witch, Um, and I would say out of all of them, the Dust Witch is most prominent. I I think especially with the dad, he's always like, oh, when I was a boy running with the boys, being a boy. I'm going to run with the boys one day. I'm like, (laughs) Charles, Charles. Even the prologue begins with like, October is a specific time for boys. And I'm like, it's not. (laughs) It's not a specific, like, I don't, that's not the actual phrasing, but like, it's, you know, that's what it's um, insinuating, I think. And I was like, that's not even, what does that even mean? You are much mistaken. Mr. Ray Bradbury, because October's for the gales. Yeah, Um, I mean, I think, okay, is it safe to assume that Ray Bradbury was almost certainly um, sexist in a similar way to, like, Stephen King? Because I think back on even Fahrenheit 451, the girl characters, they stand out far more than the girl characters in this book. But they're a little bit used they're not as so much forgotten by the male characters as they are like used in a weird way or used by Ray Bradbury in a weird way. I would say, yeah, probably he is a little bit sexist in the way that Stephen King is sexist, even though in different ways. But it is interesting, this this boy thing. And I wonder specifically what it is. So maybe it was just the particular target audience he wanted to reach. But also, I don't know, Mr. Bradbury, I'm not feeling it. Yeah, I mean, this is another one of those things, too, we're going to have to figure out in, like, a special episode for it. Sci-fi is very geared towards boys. Why is that? It's a little weird when you think about it. Um, it wasn't but created by boys? No. Um, but, yeah, I mean, you know, I, I really like Ray Bradbury. I love this book. I love Fahrenheit 451. I like his short stories, but like, I, I think that that's everything that you said is true. And it comes back to that, like, um, men of a certain age type thing. Um, Cause like my dad was like, you know, he's a kid in the sixties and seventies was like, I used to read every single Ray Bradbury book that came out. I was there like every time I was like, yeah. Or he just like kept collecting. And he was like a teenager. He was like, yeah, I would just read one after another that I could find. Um, but yeah, what is that? It's like, um, and there's this whole thing too about that boys don't like to read. It's these kinds of authors that get boys to read, if that makes any sense, which is such like a gen, like sexist thing to say, but like it would happen when we were in school too. Like, um, like boys would want to read Goosebumps and the only way you'd be, 
or like Diary of a Wimpy Kid, the only way you'd be able to get them to read was like stuff like that. And so it's like, yeah, is it geared towards them? But then, you know, I have to think it did Ray Bradbury get boys, boomer dudes to read like Ursula K. Le Guin, who ended up being perhaps the most impactful writer in the science fiction genre. We don't know. Much to think about. Much to think about. A little tangent. Any tropes you noticed in this book? I mean, clearly there's the creepy carnival thing, which, I mean, we've seen in uh, definitely American Horror Story freak show vibes. Any tropes you're seeing? That's the biggest one for me is the freak show trope, which I'm curious to know when the first freak show based horror was and if this is it that's something we would have to research I think um but if it was this what an impact there's such a spooky feeling around carnivals and freaks that I love that you know thank you Ray Bradbury if this is where that came from but I'm not entirely sure and oh yeah because if you know me you know my favorite season of American Horror Story is freak show I love it but the other one trope I was like I'll mention the Cornelia Funk book because maybe you want to talk about Inkheart too but like the there's a Cornelia Funk book called The Thief Lord which was written in 2000 um where there's a merry-go-round that impacts your age depending on how you write it and I'm like that's so weird because it makes me think did he create another trope when he did that because I think aging forward and back is kind of a trope in um fantasy too a little bit and horror or are we missing some historical um, myth about America around? So the question comes to, is Ray Bradbury using tropes from before, aka Carnival and America around, or did he invent them with this book? I don't know. Yeah, that is something to question. Did he, I don't know, establish this trope and other tropes? There is something, and I can't quite put my finger on it, about the dust which I think with this, we're kind of getting into uh, character tropes also, but because she's blind, question mark, and her mouth is sewn shut, question mark, she kind of reminds me of the fates in a weird way. But yeah, I would say another character trope that I kind of touched on earlier was the heroic dad, which reminded me a lot of Atticus Finch from To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, also, it, I was thinking about, which Liza talked about this a little bit, Inkheart. I got a lot of Inkheart vibes from this book. Um, Charles reminds me a lot of Mo, um, except I found Charles a lot more annoying. And um, Mr. Dark as this, as this magical evil man. Um, that's also an interesting trope that we could get into. Reminds me a lot of the bad guy in Inkart, whose name I cannot remember. But yeah, any more character tropes? Not really that I can think of. Can't think of any either. So Ray Bradbury also has a short story collection. And I feel like I knew this called The Dark Carnival. Mm. But it was originally published in 1947. Mm. And I also think that when he wrote his 80-page screenplay for this, it was originally called The Dark Carnival. Oh, interesting. 
But I mean, it does kind of just reiterate, was this his thing that he created? Mm -hmm. Super interesting. And I'm definitely going to do more research into that because I love that. This says that early carnations of carnival horror include Todd Browning's Freaks and Herc Harvey's 1962 Carnival of Souls. Mm. I don't know why it makes me think that they both came out in 1962, which is also when this book was published. But so we do know that Dark Carnival came out in the 40s. So I think Ray Bradbury for the win here. Yeah. Although, yeah, totally. But what the heck was happening in the late 1950s that made three different writers go, well, it's freak time. (laughs) You know what really scares me? Carnivals. (laughs) I think that's all we got. I think that it we really got into that. That's all. That's that's all she wrote. That's all she wrote. And as always, we have exciting things coming for you. We may or may not be having a surprise come for you guys sometime this weekend maybe i don't know maybe if you're lucky a wonderful treat that we have for you guys is our episode for next week so when this comes out you're gonna you're gonna be thinking of scary things pumpkins and whatever yep um so for the next week of october we have psychological horror for you and I will be reading I'm Thinking of Ending Things by Ian Reed. And I'm going to talk about We Have Always Lived in the Castle by psychological horror queen Shirley Jackson. And we can't wait. We're so excited. And we will talk to you guys next week. Bye. of a freak show in and of itself is to scare you I think a little bit